The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, are you out of your damn Vulcan mind? It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 447 with guests Peter DeBetta and Adam Mechanic, recorded live Tuesday, April 28, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, ENR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who never puts wasabi on his Kobayashi Maru, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell are here for you. We're here for you. That's right. We are. That's right. That's what we do. We're here for you. Uh, well, you know, one, enough chit-chat, Richard. <laughs> Let's just get down to business. <laughs> Richard's like, what'd I say? What the hell did you say? Uh, better, say that again. Better no framework. Hey, hey, wait. Before we do that, what? I got a, right. I got a, me a nice charcoal grill, dude. Oh, you did, did you? Yeah, I was going to get the gas grill. Yeah. But those things look like they, I don't know, they've gotten ridiculously out of control. Home Depot sells a gas grill for a thousand dollars. Wow. That's it's like a kitchen on wheels. <laughs> it's got a fridge. It's like, come on, do I need that in my backyard? I don't think so. Oh well. So I I just opted for charcoal. You know, it burns hotter and it yeah, yeah. takes a little more patience, but it tastes better. Not the charcoal, oh. the food you cook on it. I'm with you. All right. There's, now that's enough chit-chat. Now let's get to Better No Framework. All right. So Better No Framework is this little section that I do on the show every week where, well, twice a week actually, where I shine a little light on a dark and dingy corner of the .NET Framework. Hopefully over time some of these things will, through osmosis, sink into your brain. If you're interested in anything, go look it up online. It's right there. And I've been talking a lot about the System Windows Controls uh, namespace, which is yes. where all the WPF controls are. And today's no different. Going to talk about the scroll viewer control, or the scroll viewer class. A scroll viewer enables content to be displayed in a smaller area than its actual size. So it's, it basically contains uh, other visible elements that's scrollable. Mm -hmm. uh, when the content of the scroll viewer is not entirely visible, the scroll viewer displays scroll bars. The user can move to the content areas that are visible. You know, it's a, basically a scrollable. Scrollable container. Uh, physical scrolling is used to scroll. This is right, right out of the documentation, by the way. Physical scrolling is used to scroll content by a predetermined physical increment, typically by a value that is declared in pixels. Logical scrolling is used to scroll the, uh, to the next item in the logical tree. If you require physical scrolling instead of logical scrolling, wrap the host panel element in a scroll viewer and set its can content scroll property to false. Physical scrolling is the default scroll behavior for most panel elements. There's more, but, you know, I go on and on and on. That's a lot of scrolling. It's a lot of scrolling. Scroll viewer. Learn it. Know it. Love it. Richard, you got an email for us? Yeah, I got a good one. Very appropriate for today's efforts. 
Uh, hi, Carl. Big fan of you and your show. But I'm curious why there's no, so much focus on new technologies and not a lot on stuff like SQL Server. Hmm. There's lots of questions going on out there about database design and how a bad design can seriously harm your application. So how about showing us more on database design? Thanks. Gawain Sam Josh from Egmore, Chennai, and that's in India. Uh, the answer is uh, no. Sorry, we're not going to do that. <laughs> no, no. Hey, wait a second. <laughs> wait, wait a second. As a matter of fact, we're going to do that right now. Right now. So, Godwin, thanks for your email. I'm, we're listening. You know, you've got a suggestion for a show. We'll make it happen. And this is an example. And we're sending you a mug all the way to India. Because we are here for you. That's there why you we're here. And if you've got ideas for shows, questions, concerns, criticisms, send us an email. .net rocks at franklins.net. Yeah, we haven't had a good flame in a long time. Yeah. You know, get creative. Send us one. All right. So let's introduce our guests. Adam Mechanic and Peter DeBetta. Adam is a Boston-based independent database consultant, writer, and speaker. He's been involved in dozens of SQL Server implementations for both high-availability OLTP and large-scale data warehouse applications and has optimized data access layer performance for several data-intensive applications. Adam's written for numerous websites and magazines, including SQL Blog, Simple Talk, Search SQL Server, SQL Server Professional, Code, and VSJ. He has also contributed to several books on SQL Server, including SQL Server 2008 Internals, Microsoft Press, and Expert SQL Server 2005 Development from APRESS. Adam regularly speaks at user groups, community events, and conferences on a variety of SQL Server and .NET related topics. He's a Microsoft MVP, Most Valuable Professional for SQL Server, Microsoft Certified IT Professional, and a member of the INETA North American Speakers Bureau. Peter DeBetta is an independent consultant specializing in design, development, implementation, and deployment of Microsoft SQL Server, Microsoft SharePoint Server, and .NET solutions. Peter writes courseware, articles, and books, most recently the title Introducing SQL Server 2008 from Microsoft Press. Peter speaks at conferences around the world, including TechEd, SQL Pass, Community Summit, DevTeach, SQL Connections, DevWeek, and VS Live. Peter is a Microsoft MVP for SQL Server, a co-founder of SQLblog.com, an MCP, president of the North Texas SQL Server user group, and a member of Pass. When Peter isn't working, you can find him singing and playing guitar, taking pictures, or simply enjoying life with his wife, son, and daughter. Welcome, guys. Thanks. And I was just thinking, you know, it's a real shame that we're not going to do a show on SQL Server. <laughs> hey, wait a second. I concur. Wait a second. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, we haven't, we, he's, the, he's absolutely right. We haven't done a, a good SQL show in a long time, and there's so much to know. Well, and, and typically uh, when we do talk about SQL Server, it's with someone like Kim Tripp about new features. And, you know, she goes racing off into the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, we've done a bunch of fundamental shows around memory management and typing and things like that. But we don't think we've ever done a fundamental show about database design. And it's true. If you mess up the database design, you're really crippling your app. Yep. I think, who, who's that, who made that quote? Uh, you know, surgeons may bury their mistakes, but uh, database designers cover them with code. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. I like that. That's good. I'm gonna, can I quote you on that? Absolutely. I did, it's not my quote. I gotta find. I gotta find a reference to it. But that's the truth. It's it's true. It's a uh, it, and I've seen it. Uh, I mean, time and time again, uh, at, at at a variety of clients in a variety of industries. So, <laughs> well, where do we start with uh, with designing a database? Do we start with the requirements of the application? Do we start with indexing? I mean, there's just so many things to know. Well, uh, oftentimes a database will be shared by multiple applications or um, multiple different use cases. So you really want to start with rather than, if possible, rather than the requirements of the application, the requirements of the business itself. Uh, often those will be kind of meta requirements beyond just one application. And if we're and, a SOA implementation, we're going to have lots of little databases, right? Uh, you could. It depends on how you want to implement it. I mean, there's this whole idea of Service-oriented service databases, um, where you know you actually have one database, which is which exposes many different potential service points. 
So it kind of depends on how you want to roll it. It's uh, SOA and databases. It's not the most compatible thing in the world, mm. depending on what you're doing. Right. But often when we're dealing with a business, they have this universal concept of, say, a customer that goes across a number of different applications. Exactly. The business concepts don't necessarily map one-to-one uh, with or map to a single application, as Adam was saying. But there, any number of applications can take and use this concept of a, a customer or a sale or an item that's for sale or whatever it may be. And you should design the database to accommodate the data and not the application. I think at one point we also talked about having uh, databases be separate except for reporting. Who was it that was we were talking about that with? Was it Stephen Forte, Richard? It might have been a couple of years ago. Yeah, I know we had we have had a conversation where application databases were all separated, but met at the reporting system. Right. Well, that seems a little bit uh, high maintenance to me personally. I guess I'd have to see it in action. Uh, but you know, I imagine that you'd have to build a lot of ETL. You'd have to be very careful with your ETL process. Uh, it might make each of your applications perform really well. But as soon as you need to share data amongst those applications, you have to go all the way back to that reporting layer every time. Yeah. And I guess it, it just sounds a little scary. I'm not sure what the context of that was. I just remember there was a situation that somebody recommended it. Well, and there may be scenarios where that is the case. I mean, it may be that for security reasons, you're actually um, – I've seen clients implement independent databases for security reasons uh, to be compliant with their uh, their um, agreements, their uh, SOAs. And, uh, SLA, sorry. And um, and because of that, a centralized reporting system is actually easier to implement in a scenario like that. But I don't know. If I was separating out the databases from a security standpoint, I'd probably be separating out the reporting from a security standpoint as well. Right. You know, it's so funny. I, I hear about all these people separating out their databases and deconsolidating for security. And now all I'm seeing is multi-tenant database architecture, multi-tenant database architecture, multi-tenant database architecture. Everyone wants to stick it right back in where they moved it out. And it just comes in waves and it's great money for consultants. We'll build it for you either way. In fact, we'll build it for you both ways. We just charge you both times. Exactly. We'll just come back once every couple of years and rebuild it the opposite way. Works really nicely. So and, the, and to the point, it both methods have merit. It's just a question of where you're creating your pain. Do you create your pain within the application where you have to deal with a database that can't easily be changed because it affects every app? Or are you going to deal with the pain at the ETL point where you're trying to consolidate all that data for reporting? Right. Or maybe you don't need to consolidate it. Uh, one of the companies I did some work for, uh, has all their databases split out by their customers, and they actually have in their applications a nice little routing layer uh, that knows where to get it. There's a centralized database, and the routing layer asks, as soon as someone logs in, where is your data? And so what they can do is actually take those databases and move them around in their server farm to wherever uh, there is an excess of processor time or disk I.O. resource availability or, or whatever that they need for that database. And right. then uh, everything just kind of works nicely at that point. Yeah, a metadatabase. I've actually seen a similar implementation with somebody else who does a almost identical thing where they're separating out clients and they have a metadatabase that, that redirects. That's, that's a, it's a nice implementation. Now we're almost on to IT. It's kind of interesting how we jumped over there. This was actually, you know, I found the reference. It was Brett Uptograf talking SQL Server Reporting Services, April 9th, 2007. Uh, and that was show number 228. And he was talking about separating. It's certainly a good idea if you can to separate a reporting database off of the transactional system because it sort of bogs it down when you run those, those reports. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's nothing worse from a tuning point of view than a mixed workload. Um, you know, we can either tune for really high-end, um, small, lots and lots of small transactions, or tune for really, really big queries. But trying to get both of those in one database is a headache at best. Yeah. Okay, so we've leaped around a little bit here on some of the, these concepts, which I think are pretty valuable, but drilling back down to fundamentals... You know, if there was one thing I should know as a as a developer about databases, it is X. Like, where do we start? Well, thing. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, you got to know the SQL. No. 
Yeah, I mean, no, being knowing how to write a query is one thing, but I, I think if there's one thing when it comes to design, for me, it's you need a primary key. Yeah, keys are really um, key. Really? I, yeah, <laughs> I was trying to avoid that word, but uh, <laughs> important. Keys are important. I mean, you take the the business requirements, and then you want to put those things down into tables. And if you don't pay attention to uniqueness of your data, you're just going to wind up with garbage. Uh, you're not going to know what's going on in the data when you when you go to look at it. And you know you're doing a very bad thing or that you've done a very bad thing when all of your queries have distinct or top one stuck in there <laughs> right. somewhere. Those those are sort of traps, right? They, they, those are things you watch for as a, as a consultant to say, okay, you're doing something bad with your database design here. Right. Right, but that can be abused as well. Um, uh, for example, I've been working uh, uh, with a client uh, that has – been using unique identifiers, GUIDs, for their primary keys. And the data, uh, and it's, there's a lot of data, and the data is actually poorly organized because they're clustering on this GUID, on this unique identifier. And whenever they go to access data, they're, they're hitting literally every page in their uh, physical file to pull data in. So they're not, their caching hit ratio is going down. And and they're doing a lot more disk I/O just to get the same data uh, with a with a less uh, spread out key. So just because a unique identifier is unique doesn't necessarily mean it's the best key. Right. So that's a good point. I mean, there's there's this idea of a natural key versus a surrogate key. Mm, right. And uh, this is a big debate within the database community. Um, there are people out there. Uh, one really famous author says, "Never, ever, ever." use surrogate keys for anything. You can always find a natural key. Well, in the real world, where we work, uh, there are actually lots of great, great use cases for surrogate keys. And uh, so we have this thing called identity in SQL Server that um, you have these people that just slap it on every single table in the database. And somewhere in the middle is the right answer. Uh, if you're doing either way, you're probably not in the best of shape. So, I mean, first off, no absolutes. But, exactly. I mean, I am a big fan of the identity column. I think it works. It, it, it's worked for a long time, and it's a good primary key. Uh, GUIDs scare me. They're big, they're random, and they, they seem to perform poorly. Well, yeah, because they're about, what, four times as big as a, as a, as a, as a standard int? Yeah, as a long int. Yeah. Uh, well, identities are, are great because if you cluster on them, if you uh, cluster your indexes, uh, you get all uh, all the page allocations off at the end, and you end up with no fragmentation in that index. Right. So that's wonderful. GUIDs are random, so you don't get that. But then we have this uh, sequential GUID feature that was added uh, to SQL Server 2005. That's called new sequential ID function. And that lets you kind of get the best of both worlds if you do need GUIDs. The other thing I like about having uh, a surrogate key is I don't like showing my keys to my customers because if I show it to the customer, they might want to change it. (laughs) You know, because this whole uniqueness problem, this is a problem of databases. It's not necessarily a problem of the business. It's a problem of databases. We need uniqueness. So keep it to ourselves. (laughs) I'm just I'm spouting philosophy here, guys. So you can disagree with me. I won't. It's not like I'm going to hang up on you or edit you out. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the one of the issues you, know, you mentioned customers and uniqueness is actually finding a unique key for a customer is a big problem. Uh, yeah. What What do you use? This is where identity really comes into play, then, because right. it makes sense to to create a, a surrogate key and to say I'm going to use this to identify the customer. I'll always use this to identify the customer. Um, as long as I know that that's just some random number, as far as everything's concerned, it's not. It's, it doesn't apply to any other systems unless I'm right. migrating data over there. Um, there's nothing that's special about that number that represents the customer, except for the fact that it happens to. Right, and what I'll usually try to do, I, I personally try to use identity as a physical thing more than a uh, actual identifier. Um, so I'll, I'll use it as a foreign key to reduce overhead and I.O. between tables when I'm joining. But then uh, on the parent table, I'll still have a unique constraint on something else. 
which will make up more of a natural key. So I kind of tend to use both approaches when I can. So I'll have, you know, a unique constraint on, let's say, let's say I can uh, define my customer's name, social security number, and date of birth. So I'd have a unique constraint on that, and then I'd still have that identity key to help me uh, get rid of some of the fragmentation in the table or maybe make my uh, foreign keys smaller, and I'll have a primary key constraint on that. All right. So I think we've got some thoughts here around primary keys. We know we all need them. There's a few ways to do them. Uh, what's next? I, I'm, and I'm tempted here to head down the path of normalization, but uh, I'm almost afraid I'll just scare people off. <laughs> well, something else that uh, from a base database design is just how you constrain the data in the database. Um, so right. we've been talking about keys, which is one form of constraining the data, um, and uniqueness of the data, another way of constraining it, but uh, typing uh, data typing, um, check constraints, other types of things that you put into the database to, to ensure the integrity of your mm. data are, are things that are just so frequently ignored by, yeah. uh, by a lot of developers um, and even some database people. <laughs> um, yep. yeah, I'm probably going to butcher this uh, quote a little bit, but I was reading this article, I believe it was by C.J. Date, who's one of the kind of preeminent um, – database experts in the academic, more academic side of things. And uh, he said something along the lines of database design is nothing but definition of constraints. And I really think that's a great uh, idea to keep in mind. Um, all and these so, things that we do are just, you know, constraining data and like choosing the right data types is really important. Um, sometimes the database is the place to put constraints that completely relate to business rules. That sometimes that's where it could, where it's got to go. I, I'd say almost all the time that's where it should go. But yeah. that's gotten me in a lot of hot water before with certain people. Well, that's the fir- <laughs> that's the first place I look. You know, if I'm designing a system, the first place where business rules can be enforced should be enforced is in the database because it's just so you, you, there's no second guessing. There's no way to do it any other way. Right. I mean, I think a lot of this is common sense as well. A lot of database design uh, people. Do things. I, I see databases with postal code uh, VARCAR 200. Yeah. Ouch. Like, really? Are you going to Mars or um, <laughs> yeah. somewhere else? Uh, but also, I think the, one of the most evil things I've seen is dates stored as strings. Uh, I was just going to mention oh, that. God. Dang, you stole my thunder. Uh, okay, <laughs> you're allowed to curse, okay, guys? We can all curse here. We have the dates power stored as string, bad. It's bad. That's horrible. It's it's more than horrible, especially when they're doing like month, day, year formatting. If I could, I can't forgive, but I can understand if it were year, month, day, because there is some semblance of order to that as far as storage is concerned, as far as looking right. at the data. But month, month, day, year has no order to it. There's nothing. It's just a string of characters at that point that happens to look like a date. And may or may not actually be a date. And it may not. And then, and then, oh, no, we know it's a date because the application checks it before it sends it to SQL Server. Yeah. Um, but nobody ever goes into the database directly and does queries or, or makes updates directly to the production data or even the dev data um, and makes changes to this underlying data with a, a, an update statement. You know, you just said something, uh, Peter, just now that I just want to back up. You said the application does the check. And that's something um, – in my world, my philosophy of database design is the database should be kind of like the final arbiter of all data, the final judge of this is good data or this is bad data, and I want this in the database or not. I think the database should make that decision whenever possible, even if the application has already made the, the, that decision, even if the user interface has already made that decision. Uh, if more people would implement their database that way, we'd have such better data out there, uh, such cleaner data. But if you don't want to do that, that's okay because um, I'm available for consulting, <laughs> and so is Adam. So if if you want to make that other choice, um, by all means do. But if I was implementing it, and I know if Adam was implementing it, uh, I know we'd be putting better constraints into the database to ensure that the date was indeed a date and nothing more. Right. I think a lot of uh, people make – well, either they just don't want to do the work uh, or they think that if they do too much in the database, they're going to cause performance problems. And what I really hate is people prematurely optimizing and guessing about what the performance problem will be without actually trying it. Guess what? Foreign keys 
foreign keys are not really that bad for performance, but I've worked with several databases that just didn't have any because uh, if we put them in there, our data load, it won't work. Really? Did you try it? Answer, almost invariably no. Well, and, and that's the thing is I think people had may have had problems in the beginning or they don't understand, say, classic thing I've seen with people who've gotten rid of foreign keys is they didn't know how to up, uh, insert an invoice with line items and an invoice. They tried to insert the line items first and and because they didn't they had a foreign key constraint in place because the invoice didn't exist yet it barfed they just had to learn how to do this properly that when you have a foreign key constraint like that you put in the invoice first then you put in the line items right this portion of dotnet rocks is brought to you by our friends at telerik and when it comes to testing web applications usually you have two options do it manually which is hard and takes forever or use automated testing software which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, WebUI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich Ajax and client-side functionality. What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik Ajax controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future, with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. All right, here's one. To blob or not to blob? Should images and graphics and videos go in the database or should they go outside of the database and be referred to by the database? I have a two-word answer for that. It, it depends. No, oh, I knew you were no. going to bring up those things that elderly people wear. Yes. Jeez. <laughs> yes. Why do they always do that, Richard? <laughs> Did it the make darn database people. Has nothing to do with depends. <laughs> always. Always. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. That's Never bad. mind. So it really does. I, I'm, I'm actually working uh, with a, another client right now where they're Temporarily, it's, 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 there's aspects of this implementation that I'm not happy about, but I, there are things I can't change. But they're temporarily storing GIF files in a database um, because of a reporting need, um, and it works. They're small, and especially these GIFs, they're only about 4K, give mm -hmm. or take, um, and it works. They're, the GIFs are generated from third-party software stuck into the database and then reported out uh, okay. after the fact, and then there's a cleanup procedure later on that gets rid of them as they're not needed. Okay. Um, but it's for for large for actual blob data. Mm. Uh -huh. um, Adam, I'm I'm going to defer to you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd say even for that GIF example, that's kind of on the edge to me because it sounds like they're displaying it on a report that's probably on a web page somewhere or being rendered. It has to be rendered somewhere. The report. So why can't the report just pull the thing right off the file system? Why does it have to use a database? Here's the argument that I heard, and that is that. Uh, when you have blobs in there, uh, just regular old queries get slowed down. Like it slows everything down just because there's more data to skip over and chew around. Well, not necessarily. There's a couple options. Um, there's an option called text. What's it called? Text in row. Text in row. Yeah. Text in row option. Um, and what that does is, by default, it puts the blob data somewhere else. Um, so you have all of your normal data on a, on one data page in a pointer over the blob data. Oh, well, okay. And um, so that really helps in those scenarios. So if you do need to store the blob data in the database and you don't need to actually access it on every single query, that's definitely an option you want to check out. If you do need to access it on every query, uh, you want to leave it in row because it'll be faster. Okay. Uh, but as for whether it should be there or not, um, I mean, it kind of comes down to maintainability. People claim that by putting it in the database, you know, they can back it up and restore it. And, uh, you know, they don't have to worry about losing anything, losing any references. True. So that might be a valid argument. As long as it doesn't hurt performance, I think it's okay. Yeah, 
and there's there is a technical note because uh, text and row is actually uh, was was designed for text and text and image, but um, I think the new varcar and uh, varcar and var binary max data types, which are the new blob uh, data types um, or lob data types, uh, there's an option called large values or something like that. Um, or out of row, or I can't. I, I'd have to go look it up, but uh, it's the opposite. So uh, yeah. text and row option you set at uh, where at the table level? Uh, I don't remember. Oh. Uh, it's um, I, I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay, well maybe we shouldn't go down that road then. Right, but it's I know it's in books online. I can go look it up if if we wanted to, but it's uh, everybody else could too. Yeah, it's SP table option is how you set it. Okay. And it defaults for the new types, for the max types. It actually defaults to putting the values in row if they're under uh, 8,000 bytes. If they fit, yeah. Yeah, if they fit. And with the old types, the text and image, if anyone listening is still on SQL Server 2000, which I hope not, um, it actually defaults to putting it out of row anyway. Okay. And, and when it does store it out of row, it, it uses like a 16-byte pointer. So, so it, there is a little space that's being taken up, but it's not much. So that, now we have the whole file stream aspect, though. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. So, so that just, changes the game. Yeah, 2008 introduced a new concept called file stream uh, that allows you to actually store file system files, but they're tied into the database. The database actually controls uh, the content in a particular directory, and it's backed up with the database. Um, there's integrity as far as transactional integrity. Um, right. And... It's it's the hybrid of the two technologies, of the technology. But it's still on the database server, right? Mm-hmm. And see, my my biggest argument is it's a lot cheaper to scale file servers than database servers. Agreed, and it's not it's not necessarily be all end all for every situation. I I think it still goes back to adult undergarments, and <laughs> and whether or not it's a, you know what. Does the business need call for what is the best solution for this particular scenario that you're implementing? Um, uh, my preference is still because there are a lot of people aren't on SQL Server uh, 2008 is to store it off in the file system and have a pointer to it. Um, yeah, there's potential integrity issues, but it's overall scalability of system and overall uh, usability is a lot easier. Um, right. But now, when Carl asked that question, by the way, he said blob. Yeah, blob, binary large object. Well, how about clob? What's a clob? A clob is a character large object, and there's mm. a special subset of clob called XML. Yes. And that could be interesting to talk about for a couple minutes. Well, okay. Yeah, and this is an interesting problem because I don't know that I'm comfortable storing XML in the database. It seems kind of counterintuitive. I would say it would depend, again, on – that's my favorite answer um, – on what you're trying to do. So I've seen very successful implementations where XML is stored in the database um, as a set of configuration options that's being displayed on a client for like a menuing system. Uh, so here's what the menu system looks like. Um, we have no need to actually modify it from our side. It's something that's configured, it's sent to the database, and pulled back out. And we don't – we're not as concerned about what's being – Store there and querying it. And actually, I take that back because that's actually a bad use of XML. Why is that a bad use of XML? Because it really should be it really should be stored as blob data at that point. So XML, if you're not actually going to use XML as the native XML data type in SQL Server, if you're just going to persist XML in the database, pull it back out and use it externally, then you actually should be storing it in a var binary max and not as XML. Unless you want to validate it. Well, true. Then if you want to validate, then you've got a lot of overhead that goes along with it, though, because right. you're going to be not only storing it as XML, but you're going to want to apply a schema to it as well. So create a schema collection and use the schema collection to validate the structure of the XML. Um, so it depends on what the business rule is calling for at that point. Um, yeah, for me personally, I don't really see the point of doing a lot of XML querying in the database. Uh, I think it, it, you know, by the time you get down to the query level, you're better off just using SQL and shredding the data into the database. Uh, but persisting XML and actually being able to validate it in there is, I, I do think there's some interesting things you can do there um, in terms of if you know that you have XML of a certain form and you do want to persist it, and again, you want that database to be the final arbiter of good versus bad data. That might be a good use case. 
there are other situations where people get data in as XML and for auditing, for for whatever compliance reasons, have to pers- have to store that information. Um, again, it's not so much XML at that point as it is just binary data that you should be putting in the database and persisting it. Um, you're not there to validate it, but you you do need to keep it in case there is a question about uh, the validity of what you shredded. Right. Actually, I've heard of uh, customers before that had to store exactly what came in exactly. the wire, uh, down to spacing and white space and everything. And what uh, some people didn't realize is the XML data type is uh, slightly compressed, so it actually reformats the data. Well, aren't all blobs optionally compressed, and is compression set to true by default? Well, and actually, blobs are never compressed by any kind of the com- any kind of compression in SQL Server, right? Um, okay. At all. Okay. Um, so that, that gets off to another topic, a slightly different topic. Um, with the XML data type, what it does is it takes things like if there's a tag that's repeated a bunch of times, it'll take it out and just store an identifier for it. So it can shrink the size and it'll also get rid of all insignificant white space. It's, in it's, it, it's it, in a manner of speaking, shreds the XML behind the scenes and stores it. Right. So, I mean, the point there is it gets rid of the white space. Um, now, with regard to the compression, the page-level data compression in SQL Server 2008, which is a totally different topic, but uh, it actually does not operate on lob columns at all. Guys, we you, we touched on one thing before that I sort of want to follow up on, which is the evils of distinct. <laughs> distinct aggregation. Slow. Not necessarily. It depends. I can it again. I can't help it. I can't help myself. You know, that's why they made those garments in the first place. Uh, yeah, I, I should go put one on now. Um, <laughs> I won't do it while I'm on the, uh, on the, on the, the call here, though. I mean, you kind of want to ask yourself, why, why do you need to uh, go distinct? No, you said aggregation. Distinct aggregation is what I'm talking about, like, uh, you know, select count distinct employee ID or something like that. Oh, that kind of aggregation. Yeah, distinct okay. aggregation. Okay, that can be a little slow, yeah. Yeah. So, and and there are ways to rewrite it, I guess. You know, there's, these are just little things that you pick up along the way. Yeah, you can rewrite that. With, it's kind of a pain. There's a really good uh, blog post on the one of the MSDN blogs, um, the query processing team blog. Uh, which you can actually find on the SQL blog roller. Just a quick plug there. Um, it's free, so. But uh, that that blogger or that blog has a great post on how to write how to rewrite those um, count distincts without oh, cool. count distinct, and they're they're much faster that way. It's kind of interesting, and it's a it makes the query like three times bigger. So it's probably not even worthwhile in most cases. But wow. if you really need to eck out that you know that final bit of performance, maybe. Right. Um, you know, we could probably talk about indexes and clustering and all that stuff until the cows come home because there seems like, you know, talk about a depends situation. That is, there, there's an, that's an art, isn't it? Knowing what to index and when. It's really about knowing what not to index. Huh. <laughs> it's more important. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And, and how to index. I, I, I have a, this is from a long time ago, but uh, I had taught a class. This is back in the mid-90s, and uh, a student had come back a few weeks or a month or what have you later uh, to take a different class at the uh, training company I was working for. And he saw me. He said, oh, I took your advice. I indexed every column and every table. <laughs> and, oh, Lord. And I immediately said, no, 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 I did not say to index <laughs> every column and every table. You weren't I, listening. I, I would never have told you that. I mean, that that's a, that's a horrible thing to do. And his his justification was, well, it's a, actually a completely read-only database, and 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 there's never. It's actually generated. The indexes are all generated, and then it's sent out to customers, kind of like a product manual. And I said, well, even then, you don't you don't necessarily have to <laughs> index uh, every column, just the ones that. Are being used for querying, for sorting, for whatever it may be in that scenario. What happens when you index something that shouldn't be indexed? Does it slow down inserts? Does it slow down writes? Uh, it slows down deletes. It slows down inserts. If you update that column uh, in an up, while you're updating the row, if that column itself uh, gets updated, then it slows down your updates. Um, 
It, it can also cause uh, blocking problems, yeah. believe it or not. Um, oh. I've seen a situation where a SQL Server erroneously used an index on a really non-selective column and actually locked the whole table. And so there were massive blocking problems just because this index was in place. So I actually deleted the index, fixed the problem. It's 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 overhead that you don't need um, for at all. All it's doing is taking up space and causing you potential issues. So if you're if the column and the the database tuning advisor will yeah I know I know it, it's it's at least for people coming in who who don't have the experience doing this at least it's going to give you some advice on what it thinks is good and what it thinks is not good, what it thinks you do need, what it think, what you don't need. And there are some uh, uh, dynamic management views as well. What, uh, remember any of them off the top of your head? SysDMDB physical index uh, stats, I believe is the one. Oh, no, missing index details, sorry. So, yeah, there's a, a DMV uh, or, or several. Actually, you want both of those. So there's uh, SysDMDB uh, physical index stats, tells you if your indexes are being used. So monitor it from time to time. If they're not being used, consider dropping them. And then mm -hmm. on the other side is the missing index details DMV that tells you what indexes SQL Server thinks might help. So the whole time SQL Server's thinking about, if I had an index here, I could have been faster. It is. It's just sitting there thinking the whole, I mean, it's... <laughs> um, it's keeping tabs on what you're doing in the database and and realizing that hey I could do this could be faster if there was an index like this. Wow, it's just like a dis disgruntled employee, right? Just sitting back there thinking, you know, if I was running the show, <laughs> I'd do this so much better than you. You have to be cautious though. I had a customer that uh created they they got a little too clever and they created themselves a script that went through that DMV uh, on a daily basis and created all the indexes that it suggested. And I don't know how many indexes there were, but there were a lot where I had to, where I expanded one of the tables, one of the, you know, the index node, and I had to scroll really far, uh, like uncomfortably far past the edge of the mouse pad to see all those indexes. Were there more so, indexes than columns in the table? <laughs> uh, oh, there certainly were, because it'll create um, all kinds of different, you know, it's kind of a, like a cross-join. Uh, if you take uh, the column list and cross-join it to itself, yeah. that's right. all the possible indexes, and that's kind of what this thing will do over time uh, if you have a bunch of different queries. So, so. You, do need to, you do need to intervene um, and have human eyes look at it. You don't want to just automate some process for, by, by any stretch of the imagination. You should, there's no. still got to be human intervention. And uh, I think the biggest thing that people should realize um, who don't really understand indexes is that not every index is helpful or can be helpful. It needs to be selective en uh, enough. The data needs to be unique enough or else it's a useless index. And I actually um, had a customer as well who created uh, one index on every single column in their entire, in every table in their database. And there was every single query they did was doing a table scan because almost none of the uh, indexes were unique enough to make a difference. Like doing an index on a gender column. Right. Or doing an index on a bit column. Um, generally, 99.99999% of the time, is a useless thing to do. Right. Now, there are exceptions. Right. I uh, think it's, uh, what is it, like 1% one, 1 selectivity, something yeah. like that? So if, if, the, if this bit column, uh, if you have you know, a, a million rows in it, but only 100 of them are actually set to the bit uh, equal to 1, then the index could be helpful when looking for something that's equal to 1. Right. But... If you're looking for something equal to zero for that bit column, uh, it's it's going to scan the table, right? Which which it should. Yeah, well, and it, it, it's an interesting point that still the database has to decide whether it's going to use the index or not, and and it doesn't always get used when you think it's going to get used. You know, you have to whisper sweet nothings into SQL Server's ear from over on the side, and then well, sometimes you know it'll do what you want. The problem is when it's a remote server. You know, Peter is is the database whisperer. So ah, nice, I love nice. It. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> the SQL whisperer. Here's some sort of scarier things that that I find devs occasionally doing: adjusting the uh, the overall locking type, moving from read committed to uh, serializable, or going the other way to read uncommitted or worse. Is that so, a worse? 
Yeah. yeah. Erase data at random mode. <laughs> so for folks who don't know what this is, maybe you just sort of fill them in on what we're talking about here and the impacts of it. So I can uh, kind of go into it a little bit, and then I'll hand it over to Peter. So the question uh, was re- with regard to um, the different isolation levels. So switching from read committed to uh, either up to serializable or something like that or down to uh, read uncommitted or no lock. And um, I've actually very, very rarely seen anyone go to serializable, but um, quite often they'll go to no lock or read uncommitted. What do these mean, actually? Tell us what this stuff means. So by default, SQL Server will, um, let's say someone's updating a row, it'll block you if you're trying to read that row. So you can't see the data that hasn't been committed to the disk. And that's kind of a good thing, right? Um, yeah. If, if, if you don't want that contention. Well, it's a good thing. Uh, no, it's a good thing because um, if someone's updating, let's say, a sale number in the database, and then that transaction gets rolled back, the sale didn't really happen. And if you've just read that data, you'll think the sale did happen. So we want there to be some kind of uh, isolation between processes. Um, so that supports the ACID levels, right? Well, yeah, but it's, is, is it overkill? Is it over? I don't know. You tell me. It, it's, uh, well, I'm not going to say it. But you know so, what I want to say? So what um, someone mentioned serializable. So that's kind of the utmost in isolation where if you do, if you begin a transaction, you read some data, and then you read it again, you're guaranteed to get exactly the same data back. And right. That, that's, yeah, and there's, it depends on what you're trying to do in the application. If you have right. to guarantee that the data you read is the same data, then yes, this is a good thing to use. But if... Is it? Uh, well, I mean, we could go to read committed. Well, we could go to... Um, oh, no. To, snapshot. Uh, snap, or, well... But let's uh, talk about read uncommitted first for a moment, because everyone well, uses that. Yeah, it's no lock, as what everybody puts, no lock hint on their queries, because that's, um, that's every person... I talk to who's a you know a client I go into. Well, we're just going to put we just put no lock on the queries because it makes it run faster. And so it gets rid of the blocking. Yes, it and does. gives you uh, potentially bad data. Exactly. And um, that's I don't know. It, that's actually, not good. I hate to say it. It's okay for a lot of apps. It really is. Bad data is um, not good. It's not necessarily bad data. It's potentially bad data. That's still not good. (laughs) Well, and the the evil thing you're you're dancing around here is that most of your tests, it'll work just fine. And then in production, once in a while, something really wacky is going to happen. Yeah, because you can actually reread the same row or misreading rows altogether while you're querying. You know, I hate to tell you, but a couple of zeros can ruin your whole year. Oh, I'm with you. (laughs) Well, if if the reports that you're querying the data for, uh, or the queries that you're running for the particular reports, need to be accurate, then you should not be using no lock. If reports need to be accurate, what report doesn't need to be accurate? Oh, okay, (laughs) hold on. There's a few issues here. First of all, this goes back to one of the topics we touched upon earlier, which is mixed workload, where you have a reporting system built on top of an OLTP system. Yep. And um, where you have rows actually getting updated under you, and that's where you're going to have these problems. If it's just a reporting database uh, and it, you know, it's getting updated once a day or something like that, no lock is fine. You're yep. never going to get bad data uh, in that scenario. You're only going to get bad data if one of the rows is actually being written under you. Yeah, but if data is only updated once a day, you don't even need no lock because you've only got read locks in the database anyway. There is no contention. Yeah, well, you might then. Even then, you're not even using resources for locks. So, I mean, it's, you're just giving it that much little better boost of performance. Right. No, I've seen a lot of customers do that in their reporting system, just to, just to avoid even taking a lock. Like, what do I need right. a lock for? But, yeah, if you're reporting off that OLTP system, again, you're, you're just going to run into problems. Uh, I think Brett was 100% right there. Uh, but uh, SQL Server 2005 has this thing called Read Committed Snapshot which takes that read-committed isolation level and makes it non-blocking by actually storing uh, previous versions of the row off to tempdb. And that's something you just turn on, and it, and it automatically works uh, from that point on and, and gives you a lot more consistency guarantee than NoLock does with the same kind of non-blocking characteristics. So it's really uh, kind of best-of-both-worlds approach. 
And actually, believe it or not, the Oracle people had been harassing the SQL Server people for a long time because they didn't have this recommitted snapshot capability uh, until right. 2005. So it was, uh, it was a well, it was well timed, uh, and really does uh, give you that consistency without causing uh, the contention that that you were getting with recommitted and but the, the inconsistency you were getting with read uncommitted. Right, and unfortunately, I've seen a lot of customers when it. When SQL Server 2005 was in beta, everyone was talking about how bad this would be for TempDB. And I think it scared a lot of customers away. Um, in what I've seen so far with my real customers, uh, remember back in the real world again, is uh, it's actually not that bad uh, on TempDB. I mean, it definitely adds stress, but it's not nearly as bad as you would expect it to be. And uh, so I highly recommend checking it out. All right, a couple more questions before we go. Um, one, is there any such thing – let's talk about hardware for a minute. Is there any such thing as too much RAM? I I can't imagine there would be. <laughs> Richard and I were just looking at a motherboard that has, takes like four Opterons and 64 gigs of RAM. Just 64 gigs, Just really? 64, yeah. It's, that's not – that's really – I mean, if you, can you get 128? Because that would be much better. I don't better. know. That would be way better. My <laughs> line is – how much memory does SQL Server need? And the answer is more. More. Yeah. You know, I could really get geeky here and say that you could get too much memory. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because of the way SQL Server manages the procedure cache and uh, kind of overdoes it at times. So depending on your application, if your application isn't well written to uh, parameterize your queries, uh, you can actually flood the procedure cache with a bunch of garbage. And as the procedure cache gets bigger, uh, lookups into the procedure cache become more expensive. Hmm. So you can actually have too much RAM in that case. Uh, if your application is badly designed, you can have so much RAM that your procedure cache will get so huge, the cache lookups are slow. Is there a way to control the size of it? Write better code. Write, write better, better code, yeah. <laughs> um, Don't I, suck. <laughs> I urge listeners to uh, look at the uh, parameters collection on the SQL command object. Uh, okay. It's not difficult to use, and it fixes so many problems. Okay, and then how about RAID levels with different types of databases? Oh man, yeah, that's your uh, your your. This uh, might be a question for Richard, actually, because Richard's like a hardware guy. Yeah, my my standard configuration now, if it, somebody's going all out, is mirror drives for the system, uh, a RAID, uh, and also a mirror for the for the temp DB, although that's excessive. Probably a RAID ten around the database, uh, around the transaction log, and RAID five for the database, just for space efficiency. RAID one plus zero, in other words, RAID ten. Yeah, RAID yeah. one plus zero. Well, now how about uh, how about SSD? Uh, I'm not believing in SSD at the enterprise class yet. Period. Really? Have you have you looked at the Fusion IO products? I have definitely looked at Fusion IO, and they're very very cool products. But all overall, when we're talking SLC or MLC technologies, we just don't have good MTBF numbers yet. We don't know how long these drives are going to last. You guys are talking alphabet soup. Will you please speak English? <laughs> SLC, SLC, isn't SLC the better of the two right now from a performance standpoint? What are you talking about? No, I'm a developer. Not... Talk to me. Single and multiple. What does the LC stand for? Yeah, uh, it's it's a uh, layer technologies. It's how the, it's the layers that they they create the uh, the SSDs in, right? Solid state solid state drives. Yeah, right. so this is the solid yeah. the solid state drive okay. technologies, and and so you've got single level cells, which is SLC, and multi level cells, which is MLC. So the idea here is that single level cells is the bit concept. It's on or it's off, right? So it can only store one bit. Where MLC, you'll have three or four or more states in it so they can store more bits per cell so you get higher densities for less circuitry but you have to rely it's not as fast because they have to switch through multiple states so when we talk about the ssds that everybody's fanatical about these ultra high speed solid state drives they're talking about slc drives yep and for a while there intel had the drive it was called the x25 awesome drive stinky fast but when you start actually ramming that drive through cycles its lifespan isn't good enough. So the problem here is that these cells wear out. And mm, so there's an yeah. algorithm built into the drive to use all the cells evenly so that you don't wear out certain cells before other cells, which means largely it's rewriting data in the drive, which is okay because seek times are zero, right? Richard, sometimes I think here. this show should just be you and a microphone. 
<laughs> so the, my Carl, point Carl, is, Carl, you're there. <laughs> Hello. I didn't even realize it. Wow. This is gold, man. This is gold. Somebody's out okay. there saying, I was just about to put an SSD, SLC, SSD in my SQL server, and now I'm not going to. Thank you, Mr. But, Campbell. But how about this, Richard? How about TempDB on the SSD? Okay, I'd buy that. I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah, yeah and, I'd, and I'd even mirror it just yeah. because then they can use them both in parallel. And we don't really care if it fails. Sounds like mirroring SSDs is the way to go anyway. Uh, it, it just makes it even faster, effectively, because well, you get to read from both. And I'm about to say both spindles, except there is no spindles, but, you know. Well, that's not really the speed. It's the backup. It's the reliability. Because, you know, the reliability of these things isn't quite known yet. Yeah, but they, I mean, the funny thing about mirroring is you're going to use them at the same rate. Oh, that's right. True. So you're gonna odds are you're gonna fail them both about the same time. Yeah. And and I mean I, I've got I'm pulling on my enterprise chops here. It's not that I think they're gonna fail. I know they're gonna fail. It's just that I'm not <laughs> sure when. Right. Everything fails. So what is the what is the lifetime for these? How many operations can occur? Is it, it's like in the it's in the, the billions. It is it's actually not in the billions. It's not that high. It's in the gazillions. I stuttered. I started that for a Yeah, reason, I thought you I said was, babillions. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. It's like lots of billions, babillions. It's in the babillions. And, um, yeah. So are you saying that all these people who are now buying uh, these new laptops with uh, solid-state drives in them are all going to be walking around with dead computers pretty soon? Well, but, no, because they'll probably get that driver placed under warranty. And since they had everything backed up, it's not a big deal. <laughs> so I was just going to say, now you've got to now make sure you get good backup software. And, Using these solid state drives for backups is a poor investment. Um. <laughs> okay, so the they uh, I just pulled up the stats because I don't want to just pull these numbers out of my ass like some people might accuse me of. The uh, they typically now we're seeing SLC style drives lasting each cell lasting one hundred thousand write cycles. That's a few. How many cells are there? Well, each cell represents a bit. So do the oh, math. Okay. Right, hmm. and there have been high endurance cells that go up into the millions. Okay, but the whole idea here is that you figure a drive isn't full, so not every cell is used every time. They don't, and they have, and they rewrite evenly, so they have a lifespan on them. But it, I'll tell you the biggest measure, guys. Like as a hardware guy, what's the warranty? Right, when I buy a hard drive with a one year warranty on it, that's a hint. Right? When I buy a hard drive with a five-year warranty on it, that's another hint. Mm. So my question is, what's the warranty on SSDs these days? And the answer is a year. Yeah. And when I'm in my enterprise organization, it takes me a year just to do the procurement. Yep. <laughs> right? So if I order a set of these drives, I need to order the next set as soon as I order them. Yeah. Well, you know, you just start swapping them out. You mirror them, and then you add another mirror every half-life, right? There you go. I'm work- yeah, now I'm working in the half-lives of SSDs. I just don't think <laughs> we're there yet. I'm not going to get, like, radiation poisoning or anything from these things, am I? Uh, only if you stick your tongue on them. Only if Richard okay. pulled them out of his ass. <laughs> no, definitely, I could, yeah. Well, then you'll just get swine flu, right? Yeah. Oh, no. And that's what we call stinky fast. <laughs> Guys, I think uh, I think we're just about done. But uh, wow, what a what a great show! It's been fun geeking out with you guys. Thanks, thanks. It's a good time. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Come back again and uh, talk some more SQL Server. There's so much to talk about. In the meantime, we'll see you next time. .NET rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, 
at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a